Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the Architects of Art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. Religion has always had this love-hate thing with music. I mean, any religion I can think of uses music as part of ritual and prayer. It's been that way for millennia. But at the same time, only certain types of music are deemed to be acceptable. For example, a few years after the Nicene Council in the year 323, the young Christian church was faced with a new and hitherto corrupting force. It was a chord. Today we'd call it the augmented fourth, a type of musical interval known as the tritone. If you've taken music theory at some point, you'll know what I'm talking about. To the ears of the church, this chord sounded evil, something so hideous and awful that it sounded like something Satan himself might have composed. This, therefore, could only mean one thing. They reasoned that mortals who played this chord, or those who came under its spell, were obviously in league with the devil and required immediate burning at the stake. By the late 6th century, Pope Gregory had decreed that music be organized into a series of eight modes, all of which, he said, met with God's approval. A thousand years later, the Catholic Church helped encourage the transition to the major and minor system of keys and chords that we use today. And boy, we use them a lot, especially in ways that would freak out poor old Pope Gregory. My eyes have seen the glory It's the new devotional music. It's one of the few segments of the music industry that's actually growing and becoming more profitable. And here's the weird thing. Unless you're in the know, you'd never guess that these bands were all about God. Welcome to the world of today's Christian rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. We have to define our style if we're ever going to make a platinum album. I mean, I'm a fusion guy, but Kenny's background is more Latin jazz. Yeah, and I'm more hip-hop and R&B oriented. I think our band better buy a whole bunch of music CDs to listen to for inspiration. Inspiration. Wait a minute. That's it. Inspiration, you guys. Don't you see? See what? Our band should play Christian rock. 
Christian rock. Think about it. It's the easiest, crappiest music in the world, right? If we just play songs about how much we love Jesus, all the Christians will buy our crap. That's a idea, Cartman. It worked for Creed. P.O.D. with Will You from their 2003 album Payable on Death. If you've ever seen the video, you'll know that it was a real do unto others as you would have them do unto you vibe. And we'll come back to P.O.D. in just a couple of minutes. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross. And the topic of this show was suggested by numerous emails from fans of the Christian alternative rock scene. They quite rightly point out that this is one area of popular music that's very big and getting bigger. And over the last couple of years, we've seen a number of bands cross over and become unexpected successes. Hello Creed, and P.O.D., and Collective Soul, and Evanescence, and Chevelle, and MXPX, and At the Drive-In. But because of the scene's religious connotations, it's considered to have built-in limited appeal. And there's another problem. Most of the mainstream music industry doesn't know what to do with these bands and their values. It's made billions by pushing songs about rebellion and sex and violence and infidelity and immorality and even criminal behavior. That kind of stuff they understand. This God business, well, that's just... That's just weird, man. But hold on. There's our first misconception, that these bands are preachy do-gooders who have milk and cookies at the top of their backstage riders. It's this bizarro world of rock full of sweetness and light, right? Well, not necessarily. Until now, Christian rock has existed in its own parallel universe. But now, with an increasing number of bands crossing over, or at the very least getting a welcome boost from the music fans who populate this scene, it's time we sort of got under the hood of this whole Christian rock thing. If you're into the scene already, all this stuff will be familiar. But if you're a little fuzzy on this whole concept, I think you might be surprised at what you're about to hear. Hey, there was a bass guitar in my basement. I told you, Token. So what are we doing? Gentlemen, we are about to embark on the most amazing, life-affirming, financially windfalling experiences of our young lives. Wow! We are going to start a Christian rock band. Uh. I'm out. Wait! Walk out that door, Token, and you'll regret it the rest of your life. Christians have a built-in audience of over 180 million Americans. If each one of them bought just one of our albums at $12.95, that would be... $2,331,000,000. Still want to leave, Token? Let's begin with a fast history. Like I said earlier, popular music and religion have often gone head-to-head. When rock and roll first came on the scene in the 1950s, leaders of all denominations and creeds declared it to be the music of the devil. Rock and roll was condemned from pulpits everywhere as immoral and evil. Some churches went so far as to hold public record burnings. Elvis and the Beatles were two prime targets. Race music, which is what they called rhythm and blues made by black performers back then, also took a lot of the heat for being heathen. Seriously. Something about having unnatural carnal rhythms. That's, that's what they said, unnatural carnal rhythms. And there were those who still feel this way. There was no such thing as Christian rock for decades. The concept was oxymoronic. Good Christians simply did not rock. Electric guitars had no place in hymns. And even when a few people decided that rocking out wasn't bad for the soul, they had to keep it kind of quiet. It took an Orange County band called Striper to break through into mainstream consciousness. By the way, Striper stands for Salvation Through Redemption Yielding Peace, Encouragement, and Righteousness, which is about as strained an acronym as you're ever going to find. 
Striper sounded a lot like a cross between Van Halen and Def Leppard, and despite their wholesome message, they attracted the attention of metalheads. They all dressed in bumblebee spandex and fired Bibles into the crowd using specially designed cannons. But the most popular Christian band of the early 1980s was Irish. Maybe you've heard of them. U2 with Gloria from 1981. Note how Bono sings part of the song in Latin from the Catholic Mass. And frankly, he did that because before the band went to the studio to record this album, somebody stole Bono's book of lyrics. He had to ad-lib a lot of the words on the October album. And like a good Irish Catholic boy, he started repeating what he heard in church all those years. People forget that U2 was portrayed as a Christian band in their early years. Their religious values was a big part of their image back then, and they were very public about it. When they were still teenagers, three-quarters of the band, Adam Clayton being the sole heathen, were involved in an evangelical, non-denominational Christian movement called Shalom. Shalom eventually became dominated by the hardcore element, who started asking hard questions like, how can you be in a rock band and Christian at the same time, my brothers? This created a philosophical and spiritual conundrum within you too, and the band nearly broke up over it. Fortunately, they were able to reconcile their need to rock with their desire to preserve their immortal souls, and they continued on. Christian rock continued to grow and toughen up throughout the 1980s, but for most people, Christian rock was still stereotyped as well-scrubbed preaching from behind a guitar. Mainstream fans found the music weak and watered down. And wasn't rock and roll supposed to be about rebellion? Didn't religion kind of negate the whole rock experience? Yeah, well, but all that was about to change thanks to several groups who managed to sneak into the mainstream. Some managed to even infiltrate Ozzy Osbourne's world. More in a moment. By the late 1990s, Christian rock had really opened up. More groups were formed. The guitars got louder and the beats got heavier. There was even a Christian speed and thrash scene that started up in California. Throughout the decade, a large and sophisticated infrastructure designed to foster, promote, and distribute this music was put in place. Christian bands played in Christian-owned clubs and signed to Christian-owned record labels who sold their CDs through Christian bookstores. Some called it the Christian underground. By the end of the decade, the various stereotypes began to fall by the wayside. Instead of weak and safe imitations of the real thing, these bands began to attract fans for their sound and not their message. The music was positive and current while being less preachy. They looked and sounded and were packaged a lot like mainstream bands, but there was a definite lack of sex and drugs in this rock and roll. A hit from Jars of Clay from 1996 called Flood. They were the big breakout band from what's known as the Alternative CCM Movement. CCM stands for Contemporary Christian Music, by the way. Jars of Clay paved the way for modest mainstream success by a band called DC Talk. And then there was Sixpence None the Richer, who also had some big singles. The market for Christian rock grew quickly in the middle 90s. Youth groups and churches began to put on shows, which is about the safest type of concert any parent can hope to find. And that's how word on a lot of these bands began to spread. Now let's go back to P.O.D. for a second. Don't let all the tattoos and long hair fool you. All the members of the band are born again. Their manager used to run a Christian rock club in San Diego. When they started up in 1992, P.O.D. began by playing all the youth group concerts at churches and community centers in their area and then across the country. And in the process, they managed to sell 40,000 copies of their three self-released indie EPs, which certainly wasn't bad. Because they were simply positive and not preachy with their lyrics... 
and because they really rocked, P.O.D. managed to attract a substantial number of mainstream rock fans. By the end of the 1990s, they were winning all kinds of local music awards. And by the summer of 2000, this band of born-agains was on the road with the Prince of Darkness, Ozzy Osbourne, and that year's version of Ozfest. Talk about sabotaging Satan's music from the inside. Eventually, and thanks to the network of fans P.O.D. had amassed in the Christian-friendly clubs across the U.S., they were discovered and signed by Atlantic Records. P.O.D. became one of the first major crossovers from the Christian underground into the mainstream world of heathen rock. Alive from P.O.D. and their 2001 breakthrough album, Satellite. A record all about living and striving instead of death and dying and the awful things that come with life. And here's some irony. That record was released on September 11th, 2001. Then again, maybe the attacks on New York and Washington helped P.O.D. become even more popular. A lot of people flocked to this record because it was positive. And at the time, we were all looking for something, anything positive. But here's the thing. People got into P.O.D. without even knowing the group's Christian roots. All they cared about was that this was a great rock band that made great music. In fact, it's possible that you just heard for the first time that P.O.D. was a Christian rock band. The biggest crossover from the Christian world in the late 90s was Creed. Although they never professed to be a Christian band in the traditional sense, Creed certainly was grounded in Christian values, something that was much appreciated at home in northwestern Florida. The guitars were fat and tuned low, and the songs were filled with spiritual images and themes. There was no swearing. They looked like nice, safe, church-going boys, and with a name like Creed, well, that just sounded so... Wholesome, didn't it? Creed from their first album, 1998's My Own Prison. The first place that record started selling? Christian record stores. And once Creed broke through and started selling records in the millions, there was much talk and much debate on the nature of the band's spirituality. Some were supportive, while others didn't buy it. Whatever. The bottom line is that Creed got to where they are today with the help of the so-called Christian underground. Speaking of which, here's Evanescence. They were another group that springboarded to mainstream success with the help of the Christian rock community. They were formed when members of the band met at a youth camp in Arkansas. When they signed to a record deal, their CDs were sold through Christian record stores, which is not surprising considering that their record company was Wind Up, the same label that launched Creed's career in the same way. Evanescence sold a ton of records through those Christian stores and in the process solidified a fan base. The spiritual lyrics and occasional mentions of God were appreciated, and whether they intended this to happen or not, Evanescence became classified as a Christian rock band. But then Evanescence found themselves being drawn into the secular world thanks to the song Bring Me to Life. It ended up on the soundtrack of the movie Daredevil and then took on a life of its own. The Fallen album went on to sell in the millions. But then there was the big fall from grace. When Rolling Stone published an interview featuring much swearing, the backlash from the Christian rock community was substantial and very, very loud. Wind Up Records was forced to pull all Evanescence records out of all Christian stores. Evanescence from the 2003 breakthrough Fallen. 
They may not be considered to be part of the Christian rock world now, but that's where they started. When we come back, we'll look at a few more bands who are definitely from the Christian side of the tracks, and you may be surprised at what you hear. Another Christian-themed band that got started in the 1990s was MXPX, a punk band from Bremerton, Washington. They were formed in 1993, and by the time the guys got out of high school, they had already released a series of 7-inch singles for a label called Tooth & Nail. Now, Tooth & Nail is a Christian-owned, Seattle-based record label that specializes in contemporary-sounding Christian rock. The company was founded in 1993 by a guy named Brandon Ebel when he noticed that there were a number of very good, punky, and grungy indie bands in the Pacific Northwest that couldn't get signed to a mainstream label because of their religious connotations. At the same time, the Christian record companies wouldn't touch these bands because their sound was just too heavy. Tooth and Nail allowed the bands to make the music they wanted with no attempt to either A, convert non-believers, or B, please frightened parents. Although the band has since been signed to a major label and has moved on to touring with the Warp Tour and can be seen in a Pepsi commercial, MXPX was one of Tooth & Nail's first big victories. Here's something from one of those early albums back in 1996. The record was Life in General, and this is Chick Magnet. Christian punk band MXPX with Chick Magnet. They recorded that when they were part of the Tooth and Nail label in Seattle. These days, when Tooth and Nail signs a band, the major labels watch very, very closely. Hey, anytime a band they've never heard of can attract a thousand people to a show, they're going to pay attention. Here are some Tooth and Nail bands that are creating some excitement right now. POD once recorded for them. Then there's Juliana Theory, Zao, Starflyer 59, Further Seems Forever, and May. And let me play you something. This is a group from the Tooth and Nail stable called Anne Berlin. They're originally from Orlando and morphed out of a Christian punk band called Sago, which was short for Servants After God's Own Heart. Anne Berlin sounds like, uh, well, like this. This is called Embrace the Dead. That ain't grandma's religious music. Orlando's Anne Berlin with Embrace the Dead. And by the way, the singer's name is Stephen Christian. Really. So things are all rosy in the world of Christian rock. Everybody loves one another, and the scene is growing more popular and more profitable. It's just perfect. Not really. There were a series of schisms within the Christian underground. Some of the bands we've heard on this program are worried about alienating their Christian fans as they cross over into the mainstream. They know they can't be too negative, or enter territory that might be interpreted as immoral, offensive, and anti-God. Some factions of Christian rock fans can be very judgmental. Without the requisite number of GPMs, that means the number of times the word God is invoked every minute in the lyrics, you know, GPMs, gods per minute, then the band is no more holy than Motley Crue. At the same time, these bands are worried about being too wholesome for the rest of the world, that they'll be perceived as sermonizers and proselytizers, and if that happens, they'll be shot down based on preconceived notions. But then again, let's look back at Creed and P.O.D. and Evanescence and all the other groups that we've talked about. Did the majority of people buy their records because they came from the Christian scene or because they wrote great songs? I suspect that that's the real reason. You may have come to the conclusion that things have never been better in the world of Christian rock. Eh, Not really. Remember those schisms I mentioned? The concept that rock music is evil is still alive and well. Some people believe that these bands, no matter what their veneer, 
are perverting Christianity. And they're pretty adamant about that. And they spend lots of time quoting scripture to support their opinions on the evils and perversions of creed and jars of clay and MXPX and everybody else. In fact, they have found ways to condemn Amy Grant as evil. If you're into the CCM movement, none of what you've heard on this show is new. But the fact that you've heard it on a show like this gives you an idea of how this music is seeping into the mainstream. It's interesting, isn't it? Technical production is by the saintly Rob Johnston. Bless you, my son. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first? And explain exactly what you guys will be doing. And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about, it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects to sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains, Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. <laughs> <laughs> Horn, John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now, it's still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Popstar. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario that uh, went out to you know make art that broke out to the world. And now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our 
of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about black lives matter, uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music, uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they, what gravity, what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moments. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like. When you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into to make that product and and that that piece of art as far as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're 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 giving them that kind of you know close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line, right? I've I've always. I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? What kind of <laughs> headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things. Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah. It's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era watching videos by like, Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at Architects Pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Architects with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.